I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. The phrases stranger than fiction and you couldn't make it up are frequently attached to a whole plethora of true crime cases. Every documentary, book and podcast even remotely related to true crime has uttered those phrases. We've probably said them ourselves. Yeah. But we think we have found one of the greatest stranger than fiction you couldn't make it up cases. Partly because the film based on this case seems incredibly unbelievable. And partly because this case is a weird blend of facts and fiction and what the fuck. So, without further ado, let's go back to suburban Manchester in the early 2000s and see if we can unravel this case, which is stranger than fiction. So, for this story to make sense, uh, we kind of have to start at the end and then kind of do a little dance and jump around a bit. Uh, so, bear with us, timelines and chronology are about to get... A little funky, but it'll come together in the end. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> so one evening in late June 2003, 16-year-old Mark lured his friend, uh, 14-year-old John, into an alley in an area known as Goose Green, which is in Altrincham, uh, which is a sort of affluent suburb of Manchester in England should yeah. say the original the yeah the english manchester not the 8000 manchesters in the united states um which we just spent a good hour talking about yes it, dear listeners you missed the 40 minute conversation where we literally went through the list of state capitals <laughs> <laughs> aren't you jealous yeah um so right so they're in the alley uh Moments after they entered the alley, Mark, Mark took out a knife, told John he loved him, and then stabbed him in the chest and stomach. Um, about 20 minutes after the attack, Mark pulled the knife from John's body, uh, and as his friend bled onto the street, Mark dialed 999 and told the dispatcher that a man had stabbed his friend and then fled. We should probably point out that John and Mark are not their real names. Both boys, obviously now men, uh, have anonymity where the press is concerned and these are the names which have been given to them for all sort of media and reporting purposes. Yeah. Um, so luckily John survived this brutal attack and made a full recovery uh, and it seemed like a pretty open and shut case. Mark told police that a man in his 20s wearing black jeans and a black hoodie had stabbed his friend, and so police thought they just needed to find this man and the streets of Altrincham would be safe again. But there was a problem with that plan. Isn't there always? It's yes. always a problem There's somewhere. always a problem. Um, when police reviewed the CCTV footage from around the Goose Green area, they couldn't find any sign of this 20-something-year-old man dressed in all black. Uh, instead, the CCTV showed Mark and John walking into the alleyway, uh, but nobody else anywhere near there until the paramedics got there to tend to John. In short... 
the only people in that alley at the time that John was stabbed were John and Mark. And when he was out of the operating theatre and recovering in hospital, John told police that Mark had stabbed him. So now police had to try and work out what on earth had led this 16-year-old boy to stabbing his friend who they described each other as being like brothers. So Mark was quickly arrested for murder, later attempted murder when it was clear that John would survive. But he didn't put up a fight, he wasn't surprised, he just did as he was told and went with them straight to juvenile detention. He said nothing in his first interview, but in his second police interview, Mark confessed that he had stabbed his friend. Uh, but he told DCI Ross that he had done it because he'd heard voices telling him to stab his friend. And that could have been it. Just a tragic story of a young boy with mental health issues who attacked his friends. But we all know that that is not the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking about it because it'd be a very, very short episode. <laughs> hey guys, uh, we're going to start doing five-minute episodes. I hope that that's what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so for the next four months, Greater Manchester Police kept investigating because they didn't think that Mark was acting alone. And eventually they discovered what had really led him to stab his supposed best friend. Uh, so, as a teenager of the early 2000s, Mark was very much a child of the internet, and part of that early internet culture was chat rooms, which uh, people our age were warned to stay out of as kids, because you didn't really know who you were talking to. Um, but, you know, turns out Mark didn't really heed that advice. Do you know what I find quite interesting is that even still we're told be careful who you talk to on the internet because you don't know who they are yeah yet it's people are now like oh my god you met someone who you dated like out in real life you <laughs> didn't meet them on a dating app online yeah see i almost feel like it's like it obviously it's possible and it depends on where you are but i feel like it's harder now to be anonymous online than it ever has been um, I think it isn't. It isn't. It depends. Like, like, you could make any kind of social media account. You could just use stock photos and pretend to be anyone. You, well, and it depends what kind of response and what kind of interaction you want. See, I don't like you can on certain platforms, but like you can't just make a f random Facebook anymore. Can't you? No. Like, you you can do that for, obviously, Twitter or, like, Instagram. But, like, I feel like that really early, like, chat room anonymity that existed in, in the late 90s and early 2000s has kind of fallen by the wayside. Because now everyone's obsessed with, like, having an online presence that like makes them look cool and stuff it's like it, yeah it's sort of shifted into like well those are the dark web people those are the like sneaky people mm. yeah and i suppose as soon as you meet someone it's like oh my god must cyber stalk to yeah. make sure they are who they say they are yeah exactly so, 
Yeah. Uh, it's weird. It, it's it's gone in a weird cycle. Yeah. Almost. This is this is not now. This is 2003, and uh, in early 2003, uh, a a a good looking woman, a few years older than Mark, uh, named Rachel, started chatting to him. Um, and Mark didn't think too much about who she really was, how she had found him, or why she wanted to talk to him. He just wanted to talk to her. Uh, it turned out that Rachel's younger stepbrother, John, was at the same school as Mark, and she wanted Mark to look out for John because he was being bullied. Mark was one of the uh, popular kids at school, so Rachel thought that he could help John and essentially hang out with him to help stop the bullying. So Mark befriended John, and the two became close friends. Uh, and all through this time, Mark maintained an online relationship with Rachel. But as we all know, especially in this last year, with so many restrictions to stop us from dying, yes. online relationships only really work for so long before you kind of need to meet up with the person in real life uh, for that relationship to develop in some way. And with Mark falling madly deeply in love with Rachel in the way 16-year-old boys do, he obviously kept trying to meet up with her but there was always an excuse or a reason why she couldn't so according to a vanity fair article about the case when mark began pestering rachel to meet up she revealed that she and john were under constant threat from their quote homosexual stalker named kevin like in i feel like in some ways kevin is both the the least threatening stalker name and the most threatening stalker name. It's so just every day. Yeah, it's so benign. Um, yeah, so Rachel told Mark that to prevent her and her stepbrother from being raped and or murdered by their crazed stalker, Mark would have to perform sexual acts on webcam for Kevin to watch yes we know it sounds wild it sounds almost unbelievable and yet mark went along with it to you know save his internet girlfriend yeah it's real brain trust we're working with here um but you know it turned out that watching this wasn't enough to keep kevin satisfied because kevin he had some Weird urges, that Kevin. Uh, mm -hmm. So shortly after this, uh, what what we can only assume was a humiliating experience for Mark, uh, Mark discovered that Rachel had been kidnapped, gang-raped, and murdered by her homosexual stalker, Kevin. I can't take him seriously. The name Kevin. It's just like, I can't. Um... <laughs> So Kevin logged into the chat room as Rachel and told Mark that he hadn't been there for Rachel no matter how much she had screamed for him at the end, which is so rude, first yeah. of all. Kevin. Jesus. Yeah, like, I decided to kill your girlfriend, but you weren't there for her, and she was screaming out for you. Yeah. It's like, well, just so many things wrong with that, Kevin. How dare you? Um, yeah. So... 
of course, Mark was heartbroken. Uh, you know, as far as he had been concerned, he was in a relationship with Rachel. And if it hadn't been for Kevin, the two of them would have met and, and you know, had some lovely, magical relationship in real life. Uh, he mourned for Rachel and those around him began to notice a change, mostly in his schoolwork, uh, because his grades dropped to F's, he started failing. Uh, whereas before he had met Rachel, he was sort of an A and B student and seemed like he was going to go to university. Yeah. So in April 2003, another woman entered the chat room named Lindsay, and she and Mac quickly became close. But just as suddenly as she entered this chat room, Lindsay disappeared. And somehow, Mark learned that she had been killed by the British government. He doesn't attract a very lucky bunch, does he? No. We have no idea why she was killed, what she was killed for, any of that. Just that somehow he was told that she had been killed by the British government. Uh, all was not lost, though, because no sooner had Lindsay vanished from Mark's digital life, Rachel reappeared. And it turned out that her crazy stalker hadn't actually killed her. Instead, she'd actually just fallen into a coma after Kevin's attack and had only just regained consciousness. And that while she was in this coma, Mark came to learn, she had given birth to a baby. Obviously, be very worrying if she gave birth to a dinosaur. But fun. Yeah. Uh, but this, she was only in this coma, this only happened over the space of a few weeks. This is March, April time in 2003. And there had never been any mention of a pregnancy beforehand. Um, also, I don't know if you read this, but I read that she said that she had given birth to Mark's baby. I read that and I just decided not to put that in because yeah. that is batshit bonkers. The two had never met. Yes. Which is like, okay, sure. <laughs> and... So what I read was, I read that she had said that. I never read that he believed that. Yeah. So that's why I didn't put it in because I thought if if you actually believed that, then yeah, it's not. It's it, no. We have to believe he's not that stupid. <laughs> I fucking hope so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she's supposedly had this baby, um, but then just like with Lindsay. Rachel just disappeared from the chat room without explanation, never to be heard from again. Uh, however, uh, another woman would soon enter this chat room and she would change Mark's life forever. Just not in the way that he thought. Mark met this new lady friend who was named Janet Dobinson. She was 40. Uh, was in a loveless marriage, and uh, most pertinently, she was a spy for the UK's Secret Intelligence Service, also known as MI6. Mark was led to believe that the Secret Service were tracking chat rooms and other online communications for specific words and phrases. Now, you know, this we know is true. Uh, everything is tracked by various intelligence services, although what happened next wasn't really in the realm of reality, shall we say, uh, but we, we will get to that in a bit. 
Um, so after, after introducing herself to Mark and telling him that she was third in the hierarchy of the British Secret Service, so she's a, she's a big wig, uh, Janet began to hint to Mark that his friend John and his family were involved in some kind of terrorist plot. Uh, now, this is the first time that Mark expressed any kind of skepticism about the people he was meeting in this chat room. And he would later say that he didn't really believe Janet and her claims about John and his family. But as the weeks went by uh, and the more that he talked to Janet, his curiosity began to get the better of him. And he began to believe everything that she said. Eventually, Janet convinced Mark that he was being recruited for the Secret Service once he left school. But the problem was that to join the Secret Service, first you had to take a life. <laughs> Bit like being in the Mafia. Yeah, blood in, blood out. <laughs> uh, Some, like, uh, gang it's... warfare bullshit. <laughs> Janet, what the fuck? Yeah. This, this wasn't going to be a problem, because according to Janet, there was a person that the Secret Service needed taken out pretty quick, and an inexperienced, untrained schoolboy was the only man for the job. You see, this terrorist-type plot that John's family were involved in was actually a lot more complicated than a mere suicide bombing-type attack that we all come to, like, sort of came to associate with terrorism in the wake of 9-11. Uh... John, this, you know, shy 14-year-old who lived in suburban Manchester and attended a normal school, was, according to Janet, worth £568 billion. Yes, that is billion. With a B. And 568 of them. Yes. Uh... But most of it was in jewels and Sort of gold, precious metals, everything like that. And they were stored in a safe which was lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Thank you for covering your mouth long enough for me to finish that sentence before you started laughing. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, I guess better. John was the only person who knew the combination to this safe. And for some reason, the Secret Service needed John dead as soon as possible. But then how would they get the money? See, this is what I don't get about this. This this bit makes no sense to me. So he's the only person that can open this safe, which is at the bottom of the ocean. But they want him dead. Like, Surely the government would, wouldn't mind commandeering that money. Yeah. So why? I mean, like, have they retrieved the safe from? Are they planning to retrieve yeah. it? Is it just lying there in the, you know, the remains of the Titanic? Because this is what I'm picturing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just... Okay. Okay, Janet. You do you, girl. So, just to make it even better, <laughs> Janet also informed Mark that John had an inoperable brain tumor. So killing him was just speeding up the inevitable. Because that's how this works. It's cold. Yes. It's cold, girl. Yes. Janet seems a little bit nuts to me. <laughs> mm. um, 
So, Janet told Mark that if he killed John, he would be paid 80 million pounds, which, if you think about it in comparison to the 568 billion, is mere peanuts. Just going to mm. put that out there. Um, so, they'd give him 80 million pounds. He would have a job in MI6. He would meet the prime minister at the time, Tony Blair. And he would have the undying gratitude of the crown. Of course. Because Queenie down there in Buckingham Palace is like, I really want John dead, you guys. Like, yeah. I hate this yeah, 14-year-old kid this. in Manchester. Yeah, she's sat there. She's surrounded by all her corgis. They're like, right, who, which? You know, she's sat there. She's got the pen. She's like, which teenager should we kill today? Yeah. Which teenager knows where the massive safe is? Like, jeez, <sighs> that that queenie, she is so brutal. Um, yeah, and um, also, right? Actually, no, you know, I'll save my question for the the next. But you you carry on. Okay. Uh, now, Janet, generous woman that she was also promised Mark sexual favors if he completed his task. Of course. That is a sexual predator. All right, technically it's not paedophilia because the age of consent is 16 in the UK and Mark was 16, but she's a 40-year-old woman. She is two and a half times his age. Yep. And she's trying to coerce him into killing his friend in return for sexual favors. That is fucking predatory. Yeah, it's not good. It is sure as shit not good. Um, now, Mark was assigned the number 47695. Sure. Uh, and somewhere during all of these varied and exciting conversations... Mark was once again tricked into wanking in front of the webcam and was supposedly being watched by Janet. I have so many questions. Uh, I'm not even sure if I want the answers. No. Uh, there's just a lot of issues with this is what we're getting to here. Uh. I have so many questions and I have sat with this case for so long and my brain is just spinning out because of it. Yeah. I just can't just can't deal. No. Can't deal with it. <laughs> so if Mark had any doubts or wondered why the British Secret Service were recruiting from chat rooms, um those doubts just disappeared. A couple of days later, when John told him that he'd had a few doctor's appointments lately and that the doctors had told him that he had a brain tumor, which, hey, remember, that's what Janet said. <laughs> so it all comes together, right? It's like amazing. Yeah. Um, so around this time, Mark and John were hanging out a lot in real life as well, but their parents didn't really approve and according to the vanity fair article uh it sounds like the pa parents were aware that janet was in contact 
with the boys because they banned them from speaking to her. Uh, yeah, it's not entirely clear if they knew who, you know, that this Secret Service agent was talking to their sons. It was just that they knew this older woman was, I think. It's not made clear. Yeah. But, of course, as with every teenager ever in the world, the more you tell them not to do something, the more likely they are to do it. So Mark kept talking to Janet. Yeah. Do you like how I worded that most teenagers? Because whenever I say all teenagers, you tell me you didn't do it. Whatever it was. No, I, I did I did stuff I was told not to do. Like, don't watch TV before you finish your homework. So I just... Wild. Yeah. In late June 2003, Janet gave Mark explicit instructions for how he was to kill John and when it had to be done. She told Mark there were, you know, many different ways people could be killed. Accidents happen, you know, trip and fall into the road or onto train tracks, you know, falling off a building, jumping off a building, mugging gone wrong in an alley. And the final one was the method that Mark settled on. He would lead John to a quiet alleyway, stab him, wait long enough to make sure he died, and then call an ambulance, pretending that his friend had been attacked by a man trying to rob them, then stab them. So Janet even told Mark the exact day that John had to die. She gave him, I said, explicit instructions. She told him that many members of the public worked for the Secret Service, which is true. You do have people embedded in everyday mundane jobs. Yeah. Um, and that these people would be watching him and John as they walked through Altrincham. And she told him the exact type of knife he needed to buy. It had to be a six-inch kitchen knife. Um... Couldn't be like a pocket knife or anything small time like that. Uh, she told him where to go buy it from. He had to buy it from Boots, which is a, a like a drugstore type place. I think is like Walgreens. Yeah. The sort of American equivalent. Yeah, like Walgreens or CVS C- or, yes. you know, Rite Aid or something like that. I've never been in a Boots that sells kitchen knives. I was just going to say, I didn't know that. I've never found one that sells kitchen knives, but this is like... 17 years ago, so nearly 18 years ago. Maybe they stopped after this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he went and bought this this knife from Boots. Uh, There was even an abort code, which is so inventive. Well, you know, teenage boy, 6969. Janet, what are you doing? I mean, she's already made him wank into the webcam. She's promised him sexual favors. I mean, why stop there? And if Mark heard this number shouted at all on the walk to Goose Green Alley, he was to abort mission and John was to live. Obviously. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, on Sunday, June 29th, 2003, the two friends met up and headed into town. Uh... Mark never heard the abort code. Nobody just randomly yelled 69, 69 off the side of the road. Because <laughs> why would they? Um, you are killing the mank accent. <laughs> well, wasn't trying, but 
<laughs> um, when they got halfway along the quiet alleyway at Goose Green and they were out of sight of members of the public, Mark took out the kitchen knife that he had bought from Boots, told John that he loved him, and then stabbed him once in the stomach and in the chest. Which is where we started. Now, Janet had told Mark that he would be arrested, uh, but that she would appear at the police station and sort everything out for him. Uh, and that she was a master of disguise and could get in and out of anywhere. I don't think that meant that she was going to be in like camo gear and just floating around. I think that meant that she was going to walk in as like a very senior police officer and be like, yeah, no, cut him loose. Yeah, right. I realize I worded that very badly. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she was a master of disguise and she could get in. She could, you know, just get in and out of anywhere and be no problem. Yeah. Um, Now, Mark wasn't supposed to tell anyone that Janet was coming for him uh, because that could place them both in danger, obviously. And he wasn't supposed to answer any questions. He was just supposed to sit tight and wait for her to sort sort everything out. But in his second interview with police, Mark was growing concerned that he hadn't seen or heard from Janet yet. And that is when he made up the story that he had heard voices telling him to kill John. Uh, And he was still afraid that telling the truth would put him in danger. But he did feel like he needed to say something. As John recovered in hospital, the police investigation began. And when they told Mark that John had survived and that his charge was being reduced from murder to attempted murder, uh, Mark was devastated. He thought he had failed in his mission and therefore wouldn't be accepted into MI6. Obviously, this is a huge red flag for the police. You know, oh, your charge has been dropped from murder to attempted murder. No! Why are you so upset? (laughs) They combed through data from both boys' computers and found the conversations between Mark and Janet. And so they discovered why he was so upset at having not murdered his friend. And they quickly managed to verify that Janet Dobinson wasn't a real person, let alone a spy in the, you know, upper echelons of MI6. I am shocked. So who were the police searching for? You know, a cult, a gang, a trafficking ring, a paedophile ring, a murder for hire ring. You know, what the hell was it? They had no idea who this Janet person was. And they did not know where to start. I wouldn't either. So in so for four months after the attack, police poured over 58,000 lines of text, 133 gigabytes of conversation... They went through 193 separate email addresses. I think there was 98 um, addresses linked to the chat room as well. Mm. So according to police analyst Sally Hogg, if all of the data were converted into like an A4 paper pile, it would reach 46,000 feet high. So that is 8.7 miles or 14 kilometers. <laughs> And at the end of this four-month investigation, there was a conclusion that honestly nobody saw coming. In a first in Britain, John was arrested for inciting his own murder. Oh, yep. You heard that right. 
John was arrested for inciting his own murder because Janet the spy, Rachel the girlfriend, Lindsay the mysterious, like, shows up for a little while, girl, Kevin the homosexual stalker, and also a whole handful of other people who had entered the chat room. They were all characters created by John in what appeared to be an elaborate suicide plan. Now, police, the Crown Prosecution Service, Mark, and everyone else was gobsmacked. Because it's nuts. It's wild. It's crazy. It's crazy. It makes no sense. No. Um, now... John had made all of these characters very real. Like, each of them had their own backstory, their own contact details, um, which, you know, it's easy to make email addresses, but they also had their own, like, speech patterns and dialect. You know, Janet spoke like a four-year-old woman who wasn't, you know, down with the kids and doing the lingo and all that stuff. Which, by saying that, we've just proven that we are also not down with the kids and doing the lingo. But, <laughs> you know, you can't win them all. Yeah. Um, you know, Rachel and Lindsay were women in, like, their late teens, and they spoke in the same dialect and slang as Mark and John did. Uh, but Kevin was a bit older, and his speech patterns reflected that. Like, and nowhere in all of the 58,000 lines of text uh, could anyone find a mistake in all of these characterizations. Except for one. There was one mistake. Most of the characters used the same misspelling of the word maybe. Uh, instead, they spelled it M-Y-B-Y-E. So like, my my bye. In a certain accent. It sounds like it. It, it would sound, you know, my bye. It's it's my almost bye. like Australian, like a broad Australian accent. My bye. My yes. My bye. Rachel, Lindsay, Kevin, and John himself all used this spelling. The Vanity Fair article focuses on this, and I think the prosecu uh, the defense... Um. Fo sort of focused on it when you know thinking about how much culpability mark had as to how much he knew is like oh well it was clear that this was all the same person because it was one misspelled word see i don't think that that's not clear the other thing i don't think we mentioned it but like some of them <laughs> some of their last names were a little bit suspicious so it was like rachel east Lindsay west mm. someone so and so east like so and so north and then janet dobinson of all people yeah. but like those things to me would be more like huh that's weird than just a random like spelling choice yeah oh yeah and we have to remember this is early 2000s yeah so online culture was very different then oh yeah wildly i mean the internet as we know it did not exist in the same way no. It it was much more segmented. Yeah. And he's 16. Yeah. You know, Mark is 16. 
16-year-olds are dumb. Yeah. Because when we're 16, we think we know it all, and that makes us even stupider. Yep. So, they figured all this out, right? But there was kind of a big question left hanging over the whole thing. Why in the hell did John concoct this elaborate fantasy world? And why did he plan his own murder? The answer is not straightforward. Why would it be? It seems that John was bullied from a young age, so his biological father was Asian, John was bullied with racial slurs, yelled at him in the classroom and playground, and following 9-11, the label terrorist was added to the bully's repertoire. So I think it's believed his father was sort of Indian or Pakistani, so that you can tell what slurs were yelled from that. Uh, He... As many teenagers are, was a bit confused about his sexuality and soon homophobic slurs were also part of these regular taunts he was subjected to. He didn't know his real father. He found out at the age of four or five that the man he thought was his father was actually his stepfather. Although as a baby, his biological father had tried to kidnap him. When he was about seven, his stepfather skipped out on them. Apparently was... uh, I think it was uh, described as bad into drugs. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, definitely had addiction problems. Uh, It was reportedly physically and sexually abusive to John's mother. So at the age of 13, so this is a year before the attack, John's mother um, had moved in a new man. And John did not like his, you know, new stepfather. Because he felt that his mother paid far too much attention to him. That he should have been, you know, paying to her son. They bought him his own computer that they thought would help him with his schoolwork. But instead, John retreated into an online world where he could be anyone he wanted to be. Boy, did he. (laughs) He was everyone that he wanted to be. Probably people he didn't even want to be. He's just like, oh, I'll try this one out today. Uh, Now, the exact nature of John and Mark's relationship before Rachel asked Mark to look out for her stepbrother is unknown. John definitely knew who Mark was, and we think that Mark knew who John was, but, um, you know, to him he was just another kid at school who was a couple of years younger, and they weren't really in the same social circle. Now... The case has been described as a weird love story, uh, a Romeo and Juliet story, even in some instances. Um, But we don't know if John was in love with Mark or he just wanted this cool older kid at school to be his best friend. Um, Either way, once it became apparent that Mark was becoming more attached to John's female characters, John killed them off or sort of made them disappear so that he would still be one of the main people in Mark's life. Uh, Mark was in disbelief when he discovered that, you know, he'd been fooled this whole time. Uh, and his lawyer described Mark as having been brainwashed by John into committing murder. Uh, And not only that, he had had his emotions thoroughly 
fucked with. Uh, when you think about, you know, Rachel's death, quote unquote, and reappearance and, oh, hey, baby. And then she disappeared again. And, you know, this is all while he thought he was in love with a real human and, you know, mourned her death and mourned her disappearance and it's, a, it's just this is a lot for a 16 year old yeah i i don't think that brainwashed is too far out no of, out of the realms of you know like how to describe it i think he was completely completely brainwashed into yeah and he may have been completely naive stupid even in believing the entire ruse and that MI6 were recruiting via chat rooms. Like we said, we all were stupid at the age of 16. And you have to feel for him in the way he was manipulated. Yeah. Uh, following the attack, John received psychiatric help that he was clearly in desperate need of. John was clearly a very manipulative person. Some articles... It seems he even suggests that it was Mark's fault for believing it. Which I do not agree no. with. And there was a lot of discussion about how culpable Mark really was and how much he did believe of this fantasy John had created. But his lawyer said that Mark had struggled to explain the story once he knew it was all a lie. He was completely humiliated. Um, you know, that he had been tricked and, you know, been so stupid. Although a judge disagrees and says that if he was a spy, a real spy, he would have made that known when he was arrested. Mm. Obviously not in public, but once he was in interrogation, I'm like, yeah, well, he's 16 and doesn't know any better. Yeah, he doesn't know all the ins and outs of being a spy because he's not a yeah. spy. <laughs> um, John eventually revealed that he had begun to feel trapped by this fantasy world he had created and he knew that the only way out was to tell the truth. But if he did that this new best friend who he completely idolized wouldn't want anything to do with him so he saw death as his only escape uh in may 2004 both john and mark appeared at manchester crown court uh, this was the first time in the uk that someone had been charged with inciting their own murder and uh john's defense argued that the scheme happened because John, quote, felt an emotional intimacy with uh, the, the teenager, Mark, I'm assuming, uh, yeah. that he had never experienced before. And this is the key to this extraordinary case. It is not going to happen again, end quote. Um, Mark's defense conceded that he had been naive, but uh, also argued that John had brainwashed him into attempting to murder him. Both boys pled guilty, uh, Mark to attempted murder and John to inciting murder and perverting the course of justice. Mark was given a two-year suspended sentence and John received a three-year suspended sentence and was banned from accessing the internet without adult supervision. And both boys were prohibited from contacting each other. But this story doesn't end there. Although Mark made progress with the help of a therapist and he began to get on much better with his family, he still lived very much in his own fantasy world uh, following the trial. 
He told his therapist that after the trial, he had met a girl. He was now in a relationship. So by this point, I think he's uh, sort of 15, come, you know, coming up 16. Um, but because there was a gag order on what the press could report because of the boys' ages, uh, he made up his own fantastical story about how he got stabbed. So he told this new girlfriend... Uh, that he had identified a killer who was on the loose and that that killer had stabbed him in revenge for identifying him. So still very much in a weird sphere of non-reality. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what happened to Mark after the trial and we don't know what has happened to John since then. Yeah. Obviously 17 years has passed, these boys would be in the mid 30s by now mm -hmm. so yeah we don't actually know what happened because of the gag order on the press and that is a story of the teenager who incited his own murder thoughts uh, what can you say about this like i i think that I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't seem possible. Like it seems totally made up, crazy bullshit. Um, because it was. Because it was. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm not surprised that this kid fell for it because he's a kid and he's dumb and he's, you know, he's thinking with his dick, not his brain, and and yeah. his, you know, he wants fifth. 568 billion dollars or whatever and like uh i don't know kids are stupid H humans people are stupid i could guarantee yeah. you that several adults would fall for this yeah people would fall for this now yeah and like i also think that like it's kind of a a very very much a story of its time like yes if if a teenager came up across this today right you know, the first thing they would do was be Google Janet Dobinson. Like, yeah. so, I don't know. It's a, it's, um, it's kind of this little early internet time capsule of crime. Yeah. Crime capsule. Ha ah. oh, you're pleased with yourself with that one, aren't you? Hell yeah. I mean, I think it could still happen in this kind of day and age because... Secret service members, to a certain extent, can't have an online presence. Yeah. So you could explain that away. It's been like, oh yeah, I can't have Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. But I also um, think it would have to be like a different... You'd have to take a different approach. Like there would be details and stuff that would be different to... Oh, definitely, you know. yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I find really interesting is that part of this is kind of like, so John in his early teens was like confused about his sexuality, you know, thought he might be gay and then it's like, oh, but he got a girlfriend after the trial and now he's not gay. And it's like, bisexuality does exist. Not in 2003, it didn't. <laughs> it's just this weird, I know this is very, very minute and very niche thing, but I just, it's just another example of like bi erasure yeah in the media which i found quite interesting i also think like from the stuff that i read uh it seemed very much like 
that was like the party line coming from John and his family mm. of like, well, he's not gay anymore. He's not gay and crazy. He's got a girlfriend, guys. Yeah. Don't worry. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of issues with that Vanity Fair article. Yes, I know it's too. so weird. One, it's very, very weirdly structured. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. One thing, so John obviously received therapy. We know that. The author seems to find it incredibly outrageous that there's a waiting list for NHS therapy. Um, so it's written by, I think, an American uh, journalist. So I think what a lot of Americans don't realize is that we do have private health care in this country. Same, very much the same as, you know, the private health care system in America, uh, private insurance, things like that. It's just mostly rich people. So if you have the money, you don't have to wait a few months for NHS treatment, you can get private treatment. And yeah. um yeah, and also so there was a kind of press gag. So when John was first attacked, the local press was saying that this, you know, this kid was stabbed by this guy in his twenties. Um this is the guy, this is the description, call crime stoppers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um that the impression from the Vanity Fair article is as though the author is saying that the people of Altrincham still think that, you know, don't know that there wasn't an actual 20-something stabbing a teenager, as though they still think this murderers, attempted murder is on the loose. That's not true. Yeah. The local, so the MEN, which is the Manchester Evening News, they reported it in much the same vein as anywhere else, which is they used the names John and Mark. A lot of the original articles had to be archived to protect their identities because of their age. Um, it is a weird, it's a weird thing in terms of like press, um, the protection of children mm-hmm. in the press, because obviously when they were victims, they could name them and say, well, these two kids were targeted, this happened. Obviously, that had to change slightly. Yeah. Um, which is why old ar- uh, articles had to be archived and things like that. It's in very much in the Manchester local news. People know what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, people wouldn't recognise them walking down the street because, like, say, the photos and everything were removed. But it's not a great mystery in Altrincham. Everyone knows what happened. That's the thing. Like, if you're... If your town is the site of the first case of someone being, you know, charged with inciting their own murder, everyone's going to fucking know about it. Yeah. It's not like a... People don't think it's this big unsolved case. People know what happened. It's just that to rightly so protect these two young people, different precautions had to be taken. Yeah. And literally all that the press were gagged from was revealing their real names. Yeah. And there'll be some elements of the conversations I think will have been redacted and things like that. Yeah. And like, as as is the nature of the internet, like, those original reports and those original articles that mention 
their real names do exist out there still in the world. Yeah. Um, but not legally in the UK press. Yeah, that's the thing. And this case doesn't actually have a sort of a, a name that it's referred to as. Yeah. So that makes it even more difficult. Um, it does, however, have a film. Boy, does it. Would you like to, to take this bit? <laughs> so I was told we were doing this case, right? And I was told there was a Netflix film about it. So I was like, I'll watch that. <laughs> so I watched that. I'll never get that time back. Basically, you got Mark. He's a floppy-headed, haired teenager. He's on the chat rooms. He's getting manipulated. There's a whole, like, subplot that they added in where they, like, went and chased down Kevin. Yeah. And also, Kevin was not a homosexual stalker. So Yeah, he was uh, Rachel's... Uh, abusive boyfriend. boyfriend like the the main beats of the story are kind of there it's it's there but it's like it does not work because it's so outrageous yeah also though i wish like i didn't so i read the vanity fair article first and then watched mm. the film and and then read some other articles in the process of all that. I wish I didn't know. Like, if you watched the film and you didn't know that every single person that Mark was talking to online was John, it would have been a better film, if that makes sense. So it wouldn't yeah. be a good film, but it would have been better. <laughs> yeah, see, I watched it for the first time a few months ago because I was like, I have Netflix on in the background when I'm working, so I was like, just flicking through for something. It was like on my recommended list, and I don't know why I still trust Netflix with their recommendations. <laughs> um, and it came up as recommended. I was like, oh, fine, I'll put that on while I'm doing whatever. And I kind of got sucked into it, and I was like, because I thought it was an interesting twist, and I like the story, I like the premise. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make for a good film because it is stranger than fiction. You can't yeah. make it up. Yeah, it's. It doesn't work as a fictional story. It's it's like it's really hard to suspend your disbelief about the whole thing when you know what's yeah. actually going on. But that is what happened. <laughs> so it's so hard. Yeah. So there you have it. Stranger than fiction. Very much so. So if you want to come to our social media chat room and uh, let us know if you are Janet Dobinson and you know about a, a, a safe of 568 billion pounds worth of jewels on the ocean floor, uh, you should hit us up on Instagram. Yep. Come on down, Janet. Uh, share your money with us. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hope you got that code, finally. Uh, and yeah, so we're at Square Mile of Murder on Instagram. We post stuff there. If you want to comment, we'll talk to you there. And if you liked this crazy batshit case, do let us know. Uh, and also, if you like, if you like this case, this episode, if you like all the other episodes... You could give us a rating and a review. 
uh, in Apple Podcasts or like Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening now, but especially Apple Podcasts, uh, because it really helps. And um, you should also subscribe so that you can get even more crazy, batshit, ridiculous episodes automatically when they're released right to your phone, Janet. And if you want to go one step further, you can support us with actual real money not found on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. Uh, we have a Patreon page, so that is patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. The link will be in the episode description. It's on our social media. It's on our website. Um, you can sign up for as little as one pound or one dollar a month. And all money goes back into the podcast so yes um the show will always be free so if you ain't got money that's cool but it does help us and we also have a merch shop if you haven't seen um it is the not even going to read out the link because it's a long ass link uh it's in the episode description it is on our social media and the website we have three great designs which i can take no credit for because taylor did all three of them um, we have the classic cone logo, and really, who doesn't want something with a cone on it? It's a great look. Um, what else do we have? We have a raccoon hunter, which is in honor of our most popular episode, which was one of our early ones, episode mm-hmm. four, but Skidmore, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And we have one which is dedicated to the four square mile murders from which we took our name. Yes. Um, on a whole range of different products, so go check that out. On that lovely note, we will be back. We're back on Friday for Patreon, ten pound and up members, yes. uh, with a very interesting fraud case, I believe. Yes, we are going to look at the Nodler Art Gallery forgery scandal. That's great. We have done a forgery. No. Think so. No, first. first. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another regular episode. So we'll see you all then. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this totally bananas episode. Yeah. Um. And don't worry if you're confused because we are too. Yep. And uh, see you next week. Yep. Bye. Bye.